questions about categorical issues? Briefly, to help refine an understanding of karma, um, I, I understand that a, a, in, in the case of an arhat, intentional action is still possible, but karma creation isn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to help clarify intentional action versus karma. Okay, the, the karmic result doesn't come, but the karma is there. There is a seed, but then they burn the seed. That's the analogy the Buddha gives. So there will be intentions, and the, and the, and the arhat does perform karma, but the karma does not lead to any result. How they do that, you'd have to be an arahant to know. <laughs> Thank you. So when you say that it doesn't lead to any result, it doesn't lead to results for the arahant. For the arahant, yeah. yeah. But there, but it'll it does have results, have results in the world, yeah. Um, is sensitivity to suffering the key to um, motivate to learn Buddhism or practice Buddhism? The key to the sensitivity to suffering plus the realization that you've got to do something about it. You can't push the issue off on other people. A lot of my families and friends, they don't understand why uh-huh. <laughs> I'm interested in Buddhism um, because they are, they don't really see the stress and suffering. Like, you know, it's kind of good enough to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to be like a normal person. That's, again, there comes a point where it's not good enough. And then you say, maybe there's something, maybe there's something better than this. And the realization that it is possible to alleviate suffering by changing your own actions. That's what gets you on the path. So before we get there, we need to magnify the, the stress. That's one of the reasons why the Buddha talks so much about it, to say, admit that it's there. Because most of us don't like changing our worldview. And it's only when we're really forced that we do it. And so one of the reasons that you would change your worldview is to say, the way I'm looking at the world, the way I'm acting on that view is causing stress that I don't want. So maybe that's when you start looking for a way out, is looking for help. Question way in the back. Um, yeah, I just was a little curious. It seems like the handout has something about categorical answers, but mm-hmm. is there also something, what's the meaning of categorical questions, and do those two things go together? Or is it's, it's basically a, a question that deserves a categorical answer. Okay, thanks. Okay, let's move on to analytical answers to questions that deserve an analytical answer. Okay. okay, these are questions that concern valid issues around suffering, but they're asked from the wrong assumptions or with too few variables. I'll give you an example. Um, passage 69, uh, we don't have to look at it in detail quite yet, but there's, I'll give you the back story to that. Um, this is after the Buddha had his encounter with Devadatta. Devadatta tried to kill him. And he finally had to, Devadatta, split on it off the Sangha. And in the course of that, the Buddha said some pretty harsh things about Devadatta. 
One was that because he would try to kill the Buddha, because he split the Sangha, he was going to go to hell. Um, secondly, there's one point where Devadatta comes to the Buddha, this is before his attempts on the Buddha's life, and says, you're getting old, just hand the Sangha over to me, I'll take care of it, you can just rest now. And the Buddha ends up, Devadatta makes the request three times, and the Buddha keeps saying, no, don't, don't request that. And then the Buddha finally says, look, I, you know, I wouldn't give it the Sangha over even to Sarabhuta and Moggallana, much less to a lickspittle like you. Now, lickspittle is one of those old Shakespearean <laughs> insults, um, and you can imagine how David Dada felt. And so the, the Jains seized on this and got this prince to ask the Buddha a trick question, which was, if you ask the Buddha, would the Buddha say anything unpleasant? And if he said yes, then you say, well, what's the difference between you and every ordinary person out there who says unpleasant things? And then if the Buddha said no, well, of course, he was on record for saying some things that displeased Devadatta. So they thought he would not be able to answer the question. And the image they gave was of somebody with a, I don't know if you've ever seen these two-horned chestnuts they have in Asia. It has these big hooks on either side. It's like the image was if somebody swallows one of those. You can't cough it up, you can't swallow it. And, they'd get, and the prince would become famous for having you know, gotten, gotten the Buddha into a situation like that. So the prince goes and asks the question of the Buddha. A couple more details. Um, this is right after he's offered the Buddha a meal. This is why monks are told to me, don't be too complacent about people who offer you meals. <laughs> and then he comes up, and he's got his baby son on his, off, on his, on his lap. <clears throat> and the commentary says, well, he had the baby son there in case the, the discussion got a little bit too difficult. He could pinch the baby son, and the baby son would cry, and it would be the end of the, <laughs> end of the discussion. So he's sitting there with the baby son in his lap, and he asks the question of the Buddha, and the Buddha says, there is no categorical answer to that question. And he realizes, okay, the Buddha's outsmarted the Jains. And so the Buddha goes on to say, there, when, you, when you think about it, first he gives the example of the baby son, and this is an example of cross-questioning. He says, suppose this little baby son got a sharp object in his mouth, what would you do? And the prince says, well, I'd hold his head with one hand and crick my finger and get it into his mouth and get the object out, even if it meant drawing blood. Why is that? Because if they swallowed it, it would get even worse. And the Buddha said, in the same way, the Buddha would ask three questions about speech. It have to be true and beneficial, and there at the right time to be harsh and the right time to be pleasant. So this, what he's done, he's added more variables to the question. So it's not just a question, would you say something displeasing, or would you say not? The consideration is, when is the right time? Now, in Devadatta's case, he was trying to warn everybody else, okay, Devadatta's gone too far, you have to see that this is dangerous, we can't have other people picking up Devadatta's example. And he's also hoping that Devadatta would come to his senses, but he didn't, which was beyond his control. So that's one case where the Buddha said a question deserves an analytical answer, is when there are too few variables in the question, so you add some more. You know, it's like our presidential politics. Did you like this candidate? Did you like that candidate? Well, is that the only choice we have? <laughs> and there are a lot of situations in life where there are more variables than are presented in the question. Another example is that <clears throat> questions saying something is skillful or unskillful across the board. The example we have here is when the Buddha asks Ananda, is, is every practice um, fruitful? It's like saying the same question as, do all paths lead to the top of the mountain? And, and, and Ananda says, 
this deserves an analytical answer, doesn't serve a categorical answer. And then he says there are certain paths that you follow them. You develop more unskillful qualities and your skillful qualities decrease. Okay, that is not a fruitful path. There are other paths where skillful qualities increase, unskillful qualities decrease. That kind of path would be a fruitful path. So you have to look at, if you put this particular path of practice, this particular set of views in action, what the results will be. And that's when you decide whether the path is a worthwhile one or not. Another example is a question, this one monk, a very young monk, was asked, what, is, what are the results of actions? And he says, stress. And the, the person who asked him the question was a wanderer who said, you know, I've talked to other Buddhists in the past and that's not the answer they get, I get from them. Maybe you better go back and ask the Buddha. And so the monk goes back and the Buddha says, you fool. <laughs> that's not how you answer that question. And then another monk steps in and he says, well, isn't it the case that all feelings are stressful? You know, bring out the three characteristics. And the Buddha says, another fool. <laughs> and so this is when, and he says, when you were asked about the results of actions, the relevant question, the relevant answer has to do with the three types of feeling. There are pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, neither pleasant nor pleasant. And that's the relevant answer to that particular question. Which goes to show that you know, the three characteristics are not a categorical teaching. You don't pull them out every time. There's a, there's a question. There's sometimes they're appropriate, sometimes they're not. And then finally, after that, then the Buddha goes on to give a more detailed explanation of karma, and it gets quite detailed about how complex it can be. So this is a case where an, a simplistic answer is not needed. You need, you need to categorize things in, different, in a different way. As I said, this was skillful actions lead to one kind of action, result. Unskillful actions lead to another kind of result. A mixture of actions leads to a mixed result. That's the kind of answer you would have to give. You can't say all actions lead to stress. Skillful actions lead to pleasant results. Unskillful actions to painful results. A mixture leads to a mixed result. That's the relevant answer there. So you have to, you have to divide things up a little bit more to get the, the right answer. There are other examples. Um, you can look at them up. You can look them up in the book. But one of them has to do with judging people, which I think is interesting because we're here so much that the Buddha teaches don't judge other people. The only case where he says you don't judge other people is when someone has died, you don't know where they may have gone because their, their minds may have changed at the last minute. So you can't assume that this person lived a good life or this person lived a bad life, therefore they must go in line with that. Maybe there's a change of the mind at the very end. So in that case, you cannot judge where a person has gone. But in terms of judging people as to who is it worthwhile to spend time with, who is it worthwhile to imitate, that's when you have to bring out your powers of judgment. And there are many cases where the Buddha talks about, you know, are Brahmins good to hang around with? Are noble warriors good to hang around with? Are, are contemplatives good to hang around with? And he basically says, it depends on the individual. That's one issue that it's, it's, it's interesting to note that the Buddha did talk about judging people and, and using them for this. You're not judging the person so much as that person is in and of him or herself. You're judging, is this a person good for me to be with? Does this person's behavior offer a good example for me? That's the kind of thing you have to judge. <clears throat> Another thing we learned from looking at some of these analytical answers is that the, um, 
So many of them have to do with an understanding about karma and rebirth. The Buddha has to clear up the question before he can answer, before he can answer it, which shows that not everybody in his time was clear on karma and rebirth. And if we look at the other examples of other teachers at the time, and it shows that these were not ideas that were universally accepted in India at the time. There are people who argued against karma, that there was no such thing. Others argued against rebirth, there's no way that you can be reborn. Um, others said, okay, there is karma and there's rebirth, but they're not related. That it's, it's all pretty random. And so when the Buddha finally said, as one of his central teachings, okay, there, you, know, you take on, on, as a working hypothesis, you say, well, you accept the, act, the idea that there is rebirth and that your actions do have an have a impact on that. He was saying something genuinely new. So it wasn't just copying common attitudes from that time. Another lesson we learned looking at these analytical answers is that karma is not simple. It can be very complex. And in, in general, the, the fact that some questions deserve an analytical answer warns us that when you are offered a false dichotomy, check, you know, check to see does do these two alternatives cover all the possibilities, or is there a third one, or a fourth? So don't fall into a trap when someone poses you a you know, like this morning, should we read all of the Pali Canon or should we forget about the Pali Canon and just focus on the Four Noble Truths? <laughs> that would be an extreme example of your question, right? <laughs> it wasn't quite what you said. But, okay, obviously there are times when you need to know more than just the Four Noble Truths. And there are times when you need to read a little bit more on the Canon. But the answer would, would, would tend towards focusing on the big issues and then filling up your knowledge when you need to. But um, I think about what's a, good, what's a good false dichotomy. Have you quit beating your wife? <laughs> you don't want to fall into the trap of that question. <laughs> you have to clarify worse. Well, when did I start beating my wife? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Are there any questions in general on these analytical answers or questions deserving analytical answers? Yes. Where's the floating mic? Back there. Right there. Um, kind of goes back to a question someone had this morning about categorical questions. Mm -hmm. So I like this idea of it depends. Mm -hmm. And there's a sort of intuition you have to develop in knowing when to know mm -hmm. that it is an analytical question you're asking versus a categorical. Mm -hmm. um, in dealing with other humans, and uh, so in my specific question or my specific example, when you have knowledge about other people, intuitions, understanding of who they are, and... Um, you think that sharing it would be good with them, good for them. Mm -hmm. There's right intention, mm -hmm. um, but it might cause pain. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is like one of those things where it's that's not a categorical. Right. There's um, an it depends. It depends, and also it depends. Do you think that the benefits that come would be worth the pain? This is one of the issues that I didn't explain enough just now. 
There is this belief going around that if you say something displeasing to other people, you're harming them. You hear this in some circles. The Buddha did not buy into that one at all. There's a lot of unpleasant stuff in the world that people need to know. And one of the most unpleasant things to know about is your own failings. And the Buddha said, someone who points out your, your faults, retreat that person as someone who's pointing out treasure. It gives you a place to, place to work on. Um, so it depends on your in, intentions in telling this unple- unpleasant information to the other person. Do you think the other person will benefit from it? Um, they may not like it right away, but do you think there's, is there a possibility that over time they might benefit? So think about that. Great. That's helpful. So the question that I was going to ask, and you answered already, but is what question should I ask myself? Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. is this of benefit right. to that mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. ultimately? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> yes. Early afternoon sluggishness. <laughs> you mentioned a passage where someone is asking about uh, clarifying uh, rebirth or something. Th- these, are, these are not in the readings. Right. So uh, is, can I take down passage number? <coughs> Do you have something? They're in, they're in the book. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I don't have the whole book in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but there's this uh, thing that often uh, I encounter uh, with regard to the uh, belief in rebirth. And uh, the challenge that sometimes some people present or those who don't want to uh, or who feel uncomfortable with their belief in rebirth is that you're clinging on to this belief. But if I'm not uh, wrong in my understanding, certain types of clinging are good for us. Right. So, and and we should hold on to certain things mm-hmm. in order to. You know, again, any any assumption that's part of right view, you have to hold on to. Mm. And notice, it is right view. It's not right knowledge. Mm. The Buddha is not saying you you swear up and down that you know that rebirth is true. Right. But you take it on as a working hypothesis. It's a belief. It's a belief, and you admit to yourself it's just a belief, and it's just something that you're working on to see if you behave in line with that particular view, what will be the results. Hmm. Okay. One of the things that, one of the criticisms that often uh, we can hear uh, from everybody, many many people at least, is uh, that we don't see a visceral uh, evidence Mm -hmm. for rebirth. Whereas sometimes at least you can get some sort of a practical slash visceral uh, evidence for karma mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of uh, if you do skillful actions, it gives you pleasant results. Mm-hmm. And only if, if it is possible for, uh, for, for the results to come in a short amount of time. But nevertheless, people are able to sometimes draw a connection. Mm-hmm. So um, would it be... Uh, Appropriate to kind of uh, in in those in the, in the case of those kind of challenges, is it would it be appropriate to think that maybe this is just one of those things that is hard to discern, hard to kind of see right now, and so we just go with what what the Buddha has said because 
this is important for me. I want to gain awakening, so mm-hmm. I want to hold on to this till the time I get the truth. Well, remember his pragmatic test, which is he can't show you rebirth. Mm. And as he was, there's a passage in the Ken where he says people who have a, even knowledge of previous lifetimes, mm. if it's limited, mm. they can't see the full picture on karma. So there's no way in one lifetime you're going to see the full picture on karma. Mm. Mm. I mean, there are certain politicians you can think of. And if this, these politicians die a peaceful death, you would say, that disproves karma, you know. Mm. <laughs> and then the Buddha himself gives examples of people who kill and are rewarded for killing, who steal, who lie, who have illicit sex, who, you know, get drunk with the king and tell funny stories to the king, they get rewarded. Mm. So he can't, see that, he can't say that, you know, car- the results of karma are immediately visible. His, his pragmatic test is, if you believe in these things, how will you act? Hmm. So his prime pra- pragmatic test is, if, you're, if you have these beliefs, then your and you actions... Act in line with them, and you act in line with them, yeah, how would you act? Okay. But it doesn't go on to the next step of, if you act on according to these intentions, then... Are the results going to be pleasant or unpleasant? You can't immediately judge. He's saying, don't judge it right now. Is that Holding some, to some precepts can be very unpleasant for a while. Mm. If you're really tempted to break them and you mm. find it hard not And in cases like that, the Buddha says, stick with it. Mm. And the long-term results will be good. I didn't finish the line I meant to say earlier. And the Buddha said people with even some knowledge of previous lifetimes, but as long as it's limited, will not see the full picture. His, his version of limited is 40 aeons. <laughs> so, but that's his, that's his pragmatic test. If you actually believed in line, behaved in line with these beliefs, how would you act? You know, they have, these, they have these clubs where they get together and people say, okay, suppose this is your last year of your life, how would you live your life differently? And they get together and they meet regularly and they talk about changes they're making in their lives because they have a strong sense of their mortality. <clears throat> it would be useful to have a club that got together and said, okay, for one year behave as if you believed in rebirth and see what would, see how your behavior would change. And a couple years back I made this proposal here in this very spot. <laughs> And then a year later, someone came up to me in this very spot, and he said, you know, I really resisted that, and then I realized why, because it would demand more out of me. I was also told by someone that uh, when... uh, But uh, this this, this is something that I reflected upon myself, too. I didn't... Sometimes, uh, initially, I didn't want to hold on to certain beliefs, because uh, there was the maybe they're holding on to the identity that I'm a free thinker, mm-hmm. or I, that I don't want to be identified as this or that, I want to be a free thinker. There's some sort of a, maybe a sense of being cool uh, mm-hmm. around the idea of being a free thinker. Well, the Buddha said it is possible to be attached to a, a view of agnosticism. And, and we get later, we'll get on to later when people refuse, there's certain questions and when people refuse to answer them, the Buddha was not favorably inclined. Right. I mean, you know, what is skillful, what is unskillful, people who refuse to answer that, the Buddha did not have any use for that kind of agnosticism. Anything else? 
<coughs> so you've been teaching about... Um, Is it on? So you've been teaching about um, the Buddha and uh, these questionings, and you offered the two categorical answers to different questions. Um, would you suggest that the Buddha might say that, say, the five precepts are categorical actions to live it, by within... In the sense that they are to be followed all the time, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sort of a follow-up. I'm surprised, I'm always surprised at this teaching with um, um, trying to stump the Buddha in this last example you gave, because it seems like, at least in today's world, it depends is a common answer to most everything. Mm-hmm. And we have very few categorical, like anything's, um, like precepts. Yeah. Um, and you've often given this about lying. Well, it depends if it's going to no, help no, somebody. No, 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 no. That's categorical. So, right. So, um, <clears throat> so I'm wondering, um, when we're applying questioning to ourselves and we say have these different types of questionings, um, what would be some good channels or guidances of um, not having our minds trick us into saying, for example, uh, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going headed in the right direction, um, but how do we know that? Like, what are some questions? If you think you're headed in the right direction, go ahead and do it, and then look at the answers, look at the results. And so how do you know, I, I guess um, something that comes up often in practice is, well, this, this seems to be having good results again and again. And then somewhere down the line, there, it's, it's, it's a gray area. That's when you learn. I mean, you can't have everything all mapped out in, in advance for this is how to follow the right way through your life without making any mistakes at all. But this is, but the Buddha says, okay, what he gave Rahula was instructions on, okay, if you find you made a mistake, this is how you think about it. You're not embarrassed to admit it to other people, you're not embarrassed to admit it to yourself. You figure out some way not to repeat the mistake, and then you resolve not to repeat it. And then in another passage where he's talking about a very similar issue, he adds, develop goodwill for everybody. Yourself, the other people yourself so that you don't, you're not beating up on yourself, and other people so that you will be motivated to act in a skillful way toward them. So we'll find ourselves in many of these gray areas. You'd suggest that's a time to stop and really reflect. And reflect, yeah. On, mm-hmm. Am I being really honest? Mm-hmm. Um, how are the results? That's all you have to fall back on is your honesty. Because you can't have somebody there was a cartoon in, in, in Japan called Doraemon. Do you know Doraemon? And there was one time when he was given this little puppet, Nomita was given a little puppet that told him the right thing to do. And the puppet first was giving him the kind of advice he wanted to hear, and it was great. And then the puppet started telling him, don't do this, don't do this. And he's getting, married, you know, getting frustrated with a stupid puppet. And he tries to pull it off, and the puppet bites him. <laughs> he says, you can't pull me off yourself. <laughs> And the more he's getting the right advice, the less he likes it. Until finally his, the, the big bully in the class comes and sees the puppet and steals it. And nobody's, ah, relief. 
And then the very final panel, you, panel, you see the, the bully being, you know, his hair, hair is being pulled by the puppet. No, 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 no. And he's <laughs> so we, we would we'd probably be driven crazy by you know, having the right advice all the time. So we have to learn how to, learn to do these things ourselves. Would you th- say then um, skillful practice eventually will sort of be that puppet automatically? Just like, no. Nope. You can do it without the puppet. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what you said earlier on in one of your questions reminded me of a story from Thailand. Uh, they have these Buddhist groups in Bangkok, you know, they're associated with the different government ministries and the different industries and companies and that kind of thing. And they like to invite monks from the forest tradition in to give talks. And John Liam, who was a student of John Cha, was invited one time to give a talk, and so they, he, he accepted the invitation. And they asked him, you know, what are you going to talk about? And he said, well, it depends. Which is a very typical Thai Forest of John answer, and I can't tell you ahead of time what I'm going to talk about. Um, and so he arrives there at the, at the venue, and here it is. Today, a talk, Dharma talk by John Liam on the topic of, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned at the beginning that there are certain questions that are kind of not not worth uh, mm-hmm. spending time on. So I wonder if a question, um, kind of like of an existential nature, sort of like what what you know that I myself think about, and I'm sure other people do. Like what, uh, how can I serve this world best, or what is the purpose of this like current? lifetime in this in this body um and it doesn't really have an answer you know i sort of just hope that through sitting with those questions maybe something eventually will kind of bubble up but maybe that's not even a skillful question to be asking well asking how you can serve other people is useful and one of the one of the prerequisites for serving other people is to get your act together and so the question, how do I get my act together? If I'm going to help other people not suffer, maybe I need to know a little bit about not suffering myself. So I'm in a position to give good advice. So that's a useful question. As for the purpose of this life, what purpose do you want? It doesn't come with a purpose automatically stamped on it. But the way the mind works, the mind is purposeful. Um, that when the Buddha talks about how we put the aggregates together, every, every aggregate, you know, form, feeling, perception, thought, fabrications, consciousness, these things are fabricated for the sake of something. So you should ask yourself, what am I fabricating for, and do I want to continue fabricating for that purpose? Because the Buddha's image of the universe, it, the universe itself does not have a purpose. It just goes around and around and around and around and around. But individual people can decide they have a purpose. And you ask yourself, what would be the most noble purpose? The Buddha said finding a happiness that is not dependent on conditions. That would be the most noble purpose. And you have to decide, do you like his idea or 
what would you be? What would be the purpose that you, you would like to have for your own life? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Let's look at some of these analytical answers to questions. First, there's the one where the Buddha is basically. The Buddha sometimes would ask questions of people to get them to show off their knowledge. It's interesting. I think he knew what Ananda would say, but he asked them in front of a lot of people. So that people can see, oh, this is how Ananda's mind works. There are several other passages in the canon where there's a similar sort of thing. Um, there's one where Badia, one of his relatives, who was a king before he ordained, is sitting under a tree saying, what bliss, what bliss, what bliss. And the other monks hear this and they say, oh my gosh, he must be thinking back in the days when he was a king. So they, they, they go tell the Buddha. And so the Buddha calls him in, saying, what are, you th- what are you thinking about when you're sitting under the tree saying, what bliss, what bliss? And Padilla is saying, back when I was a king, um, I had to have people stationed inside the palace, outside the palace, inside the city, outside the city, inside the country, outside the country. And even then I would wake up in the middle of the night for fear. But now I can sit under a tree, my, my needs are met by others, and my mind is like a wild deer. I have no concern from any direction. That's why I say, what bliss. So the Buddha probably knew that that's what he's going to say. But he asks him in front of the other monks so that he gets to talk about it. Because otherwise, you go around saying, hey, I'm an arahant. What bliss? What bliss? It's, that's, that's not what arahants do. <laughs> so the Buddha forces him into a situation where he has to give the answer so other people can hear. There's a similar one where he calls Mahagasapa in and says, you know, here you are an arahant already. Why are you living out in the wilderness? Why are you eating only one meal a day? Why are you wearing, wearing a rag robe? And Mahagasapa is saying, well, I'm thinking about people in the future. That's it. They say even the elders in the past, even though they gained attainment, they would still live in the wilderness. They would still go for alms. They would still wear a rag robe. I'm doing this out of compassion for future generations. And the Buddha praises them and says, okay, go, continue. So again, that's not the kind of thing a Mahagasapa would go around bragging about. But the Buddha gives him the example. The Buddha gives him the opportunity. One more example. Ajahn Suwat went back to Thailand one time, visited Ajahn Mahabua. And a lot of people in Thailand assume that any, any Thai monk coming over to the States is fixing his own food, driving his own car, handling money. <laughs> so, as Ajahn Suwat is bowing down to Ajahn Mahabua, Ajahn Mahabua says, So I understand you're fixing your own food over there. And so Ajahn Suwat says, and this is in front of a lot of people, he says, well, may they, there may be some monks who are doing that, but you can be confident that a student of yours would not do that. So again, he's giving Ajahn Suwat the opportunity to tell these people who may be assuming that that's what's happening, no, I don't fix my own food, I don't break the rules in other ways. So again, it's offering an opportunity for the person to speak. So this is what's happening here. The Buddha asks this question of Ananda, and Ananda says, you can't say that every path is fruitful. And then you, which, which paths are fruitful? One of the ones where as he says, if holy life that is followed is essential worth, if one's skillful, unskillful qualities increase, when skillful qualities decline, that sort of habit and practice, etc., etc., is fruitless. But when by following a life, a habit and practice, holy life that is followed of essential worth, one's unskillful qualities decline, while one's skillful qualities increase, that sort of habit and practice, etc., is fruitful. So he's making the distinction. You can't say that every path leads to the top of the mountain. If you've ever been on a mountain, 
you know, that that's the case. Any questions on this particular passage? It's all pretty clear. This next one, Patches 66, this is where the wanderer comes to Samiti. He says, I have face to face with the Gautama of the Ken Temple, and I've heard this. Bodily action is barren, verbal action is barren, only mental action is true. And there is an attainment which, on being attained, one doesn't feel anything. And somebody says, don't say that. That would be misrepresent. Basically, basically it means the word misrepresent here can also mean to slander. Um, there is an attainment on which, being attained, one doesn't feel anything. And the wonder says, how long have you been ordained? Not long, three years. Then what now should I say about the elder monks when a young monk would suppose that his teaching is to be defended in this way? Having intentionally done an action with body, with speech, with mind, what does one experience? And this is what Samiti says, one experiences stress. So Samiti goes to see Ananda, Ananda takes us to the Buddha, and the Buddha says, I do not recall ever having seen this wonder, much less having had that sort of discussion. And his question, which deserved an analytical answer, has been given a categorical answer. This is when Odayan steps in. He says, but what if he was speaking in reference to this? Whatever is felt comes under stress. And when this is said, the Blessed One said to Ananda, Look, Ananda, how this worthless Odayan interrupts. I knew just now that he would interrupt in an inappropriate way. It must have been rough being Buddha. From the very beginning, the wanderer was asking about the three kinds of feeling. In other words, there are three kinds of actions, therefore they will lead to three kinds of feeling. When this worthless Samiti was asked by him in this way, he should have answered, having intentionally done with body, speech, or mind, an action that is to be experienced as pleasure, one experiences pleasure. In other words, a skillful action. Having intentionally done with body, speech, or mind, an action that is to be experienced as pain, in other words, an unskillful action, one experiences pain. And having intentionally done with body, speech, or mind, an action that is to be experienced as neither pleasure nor pain, one experiences neither pleasure nor pain. This is a neutral action. Answering this way, this he would have rightly answered the wanderer. So the lesson we get from this is that the teachings have to be used in the appropriate context. You can't just pull out the three characteristics at the drop of a hat. You know, is this appropriate time to be answering with that type of answer, or do we have other answers that are pro more appropriate for the question? This, by the way, apologies, one of the suttas that goes into a lot more detail on karma and rebirth. In later in the later sections of the of the sutta. One thirty six. Microphone. This seems to be very similar to the same to the other sutta where basically this wanderer is asking about uh, if the actions have any uh, that all actions are. The Samadhi says that all actions uh, result in stress, but here this is something slight, slightly different. Or is well, this is what Samadhi says. He, he doesn't say, because I, I thought that there was one passage where uh, Venerable Samadhi says uh, uh, that all actions lead to stress. This is the one. This is the same one? Mm -hmm. So, but but then it seems to read something completely different. It seems to read bodily actions as barren, 
verbal action is barren, only mental action is true. But there is, friend, an attainment in which on being attained one doesn't feel anything. No, you say it is not the case that only mental action is true. See, the Blessed One would not say would that. Would not say that. Yeah, okay. But there, but there, there is, is an attainment in which being attained one doesn't feel anything. That's actually true. The Buddha doesn't address that in the course of the sutta. I mean, there is a sensation of feeling and perception. Right, right. Okay, so he's, he's, going, he, he's talking only about the final attainment here, and which is not what the wanderer is asking. wanderer is asking about action only, I thought. He starts out by asking about action, saying that only... And he says, hey, I learned this from the Buddha, that your physical actions have no results, your verbal actions have no results. Oh, I see. So this is the second question he asks. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yes. I have a question about the use of the word worthless, which Moka <laughs> Barisa strikes me as awfully strong, and, and I don't do much Sutta reading, but I'm wondering if I were reading a Sutta and, and see that, does he mean it literally? Is it for effect? Is it... The Buddha could be quite strong in his criticism, especially of monks. If the monks started misbehaving, that's the term he used in Mokha Bodhisattva. Mokha literally means nothing. I'm trying to think of what would be a good English translation aside from worthless. Um, not only empty headed, worse than empty headed, just empty charactered. <laughs> Just basically an empty person. Not quite a zombie. Somebody, I mean, he was thinking. Zombies don't think. Unless they think, I need human flesh. You know? um. <laughs> so is part of the Buddha's reaction because the answer that the monk gave is actually pointing in the wrong direction? Very much in the wrong direction. Okay. And he's, you, th- you think about being in the position of the Buddha, and the Buddha didn't write anything down. He's depending totally on his monks to pass the teaching on. And if, if somebody in, you know, face to face to him is saying something really out of line, he wants to get the word across that no, this is, this is not acceptable. Thank you. I've been working on a life of the Buddha, and one of the things I've been noticing is that um, you have an incident and then you have people reporting the incident. And the people who are reliable are the ones who report someone else's speech word for word. The people who are not reliable are the ones who sort of give a general precy or a general... They're not, not that precise in their reporting of speech. Can you imagine that standard being applied to us? <laughs> yes? Turn it on. Turn on the mic. Uh, I wonder um, what emotions or feelings do awakening uh, folks have? They have joy, equanimity. Uh, so would Buddha be not satisfied with uh, the, the the answers that the monks give, or like would would any? There's no frustration, no... Well, he says he, you know, his mind is not altered by what they're doing. 
but he has to behave like, you know, like a parent. Which means, you know, the kid is doing something wrong and you love the kid but you yell at them <laughs> when you have to. So, that, not attach to the feelings but you have to act as, as you if. know. Because imagine if the Buddha were running around beaming all the time. <laughs> and that people would say, ah, it's okay. He's, he's still beaming. Okay, finally, this, this one for me is the most interesting of the analytical answers. Is Okay, this is after the Blessed One had eaten and removed his hand from his bowl. Prince Abhaya took a lower seat and sat to one side. As he was sitting there, he asked, said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, with the Dathagata, that's another word for the Buddha, say words that are un- endearing and displeasing to others. And the Buddha says, Prince, there is no categorical answer to that. Right there, Venerable Sir, the Nikantas are destroyed. But Prince, why do you say that? And then he explains how he's been put up to ask this question. And so here we get the Buddha's parsing out the question. First he gives the cross-questioning. He, he cites the example of the baby boy, has the prince make some statements about how he would treat the baby boy. Notice how he does that. He gets the prince to make some statements first. So the prince is com- committed to, to, to interpreting the image in a particular way. Then the Buddha draws the analogy. It's, it, the Buddha also does this in debate. He will cite an example get the other person to make some statements about the example. Then he draws the conclusions from the example. In other words, he gets the opponent to commit himself. Then he draws them out. And so then the Buddha says, if he knows it to be unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, unendearing, displeasing to others, he wouldn't say them, period. In the case, if it's factual, true, but unbeneficial, unendearing, displeasing to others, he doesn't say them. It's on page four. Words that are factual, true, beneficial, but unendearing, displeasing to others, he has a sense of the proper time for saying them. Words that are unfactual, untrue, unbeneficial, but endearing and pleasing to others, in other words, things people like to hear, but they're not true, they're not beneficial, he doesn't say them. Things to be factual, true, unbeneficial, but endearing and pleasing to others, in other words, it's true, but it doesn't serve any purpose. Even though people like to hear him, he doesn't say them. And if actually, if it's factual, true, beneficial, endearing, and pleasing to others, even then he has a sense of the right time to say them. So it's not the case that he would give preference to, you know, he say endearing words all the time. Sometimes you have to say things in a sharp way for people to get some, get a sense of the seriousness of the issue. Notice there's, there are a couple of alternatives that Buddha does not even consider. Something that would be untrue but beneficial, you know, white lies. It's not even considered as a possibility. So these are the these are the Buddhist criteria for the kind of speech that he would engage in. Of course, he means this to be taken as an example. Any questions on that passage? Yes. Here's our mic. Now it is. Okay. 
Um, I guess this is one where I've been wondering, again, in the case of, like, children and parents, although it can come up in other situations, too. And you have the child, let's say there's a fire, because we've had these horrible fires here. Mm-hmm. And the child is saying, Mommy, are we going to be okay? And the mother says, Yeah, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in a sense, that's a lie because she doesn't actually know, mm-hmm. but it's what she needs to say so that the child doesn't freak out, mm-hmm. so that they have a chance of dealing with the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, is I guess I'm wondering, is there a different category when you're talking about the future and you don't actually know, but you're sort of putting the best spin on it that you can? I trust we'll be okay. And Kids are really quick to pick up when they've been lied to. So you might want to say, I will do everything I can to protect you. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, one of my big disappointments in life was when I discovered my parents were lying to me about Santa Claus. <laughs> I left some cookies for Santa Claus when I was four years old and I got a note from Santa Claus thanking me for the cookies and it was my mother's handwriting <laughs> I cried It says here, you know, the endearing and pleasing to others. But didn't you say that sometimes it's not endearing, but you need to say it? Yeah, there was that one opportunity. It's um, alternative number three. True, beneficial, but unendearing and displeasing to others. Yes, a sense of the proper time. Okay, so it would be the proper time to say, like, not not to embarrass them, but to be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, not for speaking, but for killing. Is there any rules like that? Like you know, nowadays people do pest control and so forth. Like mm-hmm. uh, the Buddha said, guidelines? the one the one thing you should kill is your anger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for example, when you sell a house, we have to do termite stuff. You know, like when you're living as a you know, a, a human being, they're just like sometimes. I don't know. <laughs> Is there any rule guideline? Before you buy the house, <laughs> make sure that it's been termite proofed. No, <laughs> no, but you can you can treat wood and things so that resists termites. Be pro. In other words, be proactive. Don't wait until the, the signs of termites. Do what you can ahead of time to make sure the termites are not attracted to your house. There are chemicals and things you can put on the wood that repel the termites. Now, we live down in San Diego County where we have all kinds of pests. And it's been a challenge, you know, de- designing the huts and preparing them, how to keep the ants out, how to keep the other bugs out, how to keep the mice out, etc., etc. And you learn that if you learn how to start think, start thinking like an ant or thinking like a like a pest, you know, it, 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 it expands you as a human being. <laughs> okay, let's move on to cross questioning. <clears throat>
when I first started this project, the reason I got interested in the types of questions was because I was interested in the questions that the Buddha put aside. Um, that's not worth answering. As I got more and more into the project, I found myself being more and more interested in the cross-questioning. Because this is, this is probably the most practical part of the, of, of this, the lessons that we're going to learn today, is how you ask questions of yourself, how you cross-question yourself. And also how you deal with the question of how do, when you're explaining something, if you're going to give an answer to somebody's question and you're afraid that they're not going to understand, you try to ask yourself, is there an analogy I can give them before I explain anything else? And talk to them about the analogy. Make sure the analogy is clear. Then you give them the answer. This is, a very, this is probably the most distinctive way that the Buddha uses cross-questioning in his different teachings. But when we look at the, Buddha, the Buddha's own quest, you can see it started out in the type of questions he asked himself. Um, the very first one, why am I subject to aging, illness, and death, looking for happiness in things that are subject to aging, illness, and death? Why don't I search for what is, does not age, what does not grow ill, what does not die? So for the first role of this question is to sense a lack, something is wrong, and then to spark your imagination as to what might be a possible way of filling in the lack. So he's not teaching you, well, just learn how to accept things as they are. Recognize, you know, there's something wrong with the way I'm living my life. What can I do differently? So then he starts, as he said, his search was for a skill. It's interesting, he's looking for a skill that would lead to something unconditioned. In other words, he's looking for an action that would bring the mind to something unconditioned. Which... As many times in throughout Buddhist history, people say, well, this is impossible. If something is unconditioned, you cannot do anything to create the unconditioned, which is true. But this is why he uses the image of the path. The path can take you there. It doesn't cause, it's like a, the road to a mountain, it does not cause the mountain. But if you follow the path, it gets you to the mountain. So that's what he was looking for. So along the way, he took some wrong turns. And one of the lessons he got he got, he got this vision of, about wood. There was damp wood in a stream, and he said if you tried to use that to start a fire, it would not, it would not, it would not ignite. If you had damp wood, even if you had removed it from the stream, you could still not use it to light a fire. And then what you needed was dry wood kept far away from the stream. You could use that in order to start a fire. Now he interpreted that analogy as saying, I have to avoid all pleasure. And that's why he started torturing himself. And it took him six years to realize he had misinterpreted the analogy. It doesn't refer, the, the dampness doesn't refer to all pleasure, it refers, refers to sensuality. Now, sensuality here does not mean the particular pleasure of sight, sound, smells, taste, tactile sensations. It means your fascination with thinking about sensual pleasures and planning for your sensual pleasures. Again, to take the analogy of the pizza, you could sit here this afternoon and think about, do I want pepperoni pizza, or do I want pineapple pizza, do I want... And you can think about all the different kinds of pizzas. And, you know, this, this is a foodie paradise up here. You can think of all the different stores up and down where you can buy all these different kinds of pizzas. You can think for hours about pizza. In some ways it's actually more fun than actually eating the pizza. And you get the pizza and you bought it. Fifteen minutes, it's done. 
And then you think for an hour or two after about what a great pizza that was. Okay, it's the thinking before and after. That's the sensuality. And that's where the problem is. That the mind just gets more and more involved in thinking, I really want this pleasure, and I, if I, well, I don't like that pleasure, maybe I'd like this one. And we get more and more involved in that kind of thing. So that's when the Buddha realized, okay, I have to change what I'm thinking about. Can I find pleasure in a way that does not involve sensuality? And that's when he got the mind into jhana, as he talked about how he. Another stage in the question in his path was he said, "Why don't I divide my thinking into two sorts: skillful thinking and unskillful thinking?" And so he has the analogy of the cowherd that during the, the rainy season, when there's rice in the field, the cowherd has to be very careful not to let his cows get into the rice, and he has to beat them and check them and keep them away. However, in the dry season, when the rice has been harvested, there's no danger for the cows to wander into the field, so you can just go let the cows wander as you like. And so the rainy season was a symbol for unskillful thinking. Your mind goes into unskillful things, you have to stop, 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 stop. And then when you get the mind into skillful thinking, all you have to do is be mindful, okay, I'm thinking about X, but there's no problem because it's all skillful. But then he had the realization, if, even if I thought for skillful things for a day, there would be no bad consequences. However, it tires the mind. And it was that realization, so I've got to get the mind to settle into concentration. That's how we got the mind into jhana. And so even when he gains the jhana, he doesn't stop there. He uses his, his state of concentration to gain knowledge. The mind is clear, malleable, and he st starts asking questions. Obviously the first question was, is this the, the, the only lifetime I've had or have been, been lifetimes before this? He starts remembering back, 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 back. And then the next question was, okay, what is the pattern here? Because you look at, if you just looked at your own narrative, there's a lot of ups and downs. And sometimes it doesn't seem to be connected to anything you've done. So that's when he had the vision of all beings in the universe dying and then being reborn with their karma. In other words, he had to get the cosmic picture in order to see the pattern. And they didn't stop there. He, he talks about it in, in other places that there was, there were other contemplatives who had gained those knowledges and they said, okay, now I can teach you about action, now I can teach you about rebirth, now I can teach you about where your relatives have gone. They stopped there with that knowledge. But he said, this knowledge does not put an end to suffering. So that's when he gained his insight into what is the karma? The karma was the intention. It's based on certain views. Are there intentions and views that I could apply right now that would get me outside of this cycle? So again, he keeps asking questions about himself. What, what's the best use of this knowledge? And so he applies that knowledge that he got from seeing the cosmic pattern to his mind in the present moment. And that was what enabled him to gain release. And as we read in other parts of the canon, um, even after he gained release, he checked his knowledge against, okay, does this knowledge, is this up to standard? Have I gained the knowledge? I really need to guarantee that I don't have any more rebirth. Do I have gained the knowledge? I need to know that there's no other higher attainment than this. And when he had certified that that was the case, that's when he started teaching. So he's constantly quizzing himself about what am I doing? I gained something good. What's the best use of this? And then when he, got, he used it, he said, okay, did, I, did I get the best use out of that, or could there be something better? So that's, that's how he cross-questioned himself. Okay. 
So what he learned from this, his entire search was guided by cross-questioning. This is why he made cross-questioning such a central teacher, feature of his teaching style. He also learned that wrongly, wrongly framed questions can lead you astray. Uh, that six years spent in self-torment because he misunderstood that vision. In this case, he needed a more analytical answer to the question of whether self-indulgence was better than self-torment. So maybe that's not, those are not the only alternatives. There is a third alternative, which he called the middle way, which is, which is basically an analytical answer to that question. He also realized the high standards he needed to judge the results. You know, he studied with two other teachers, and they got to very refined states of concentration, and they said, this is it, this is as far as it goes. He said, well, it still hasn't ended my suffering. There must be something better. So he held himself to a very high standard. Which he then, of course, he later said he, um, one of the qualities that led to his awakening was he did not rest content with his skillful qualities. We hear so much about contentment as a Buddhist teaching. But it basically that means contentment with your physical surroundings. If it's good enough to practice, it's good enough. Then the next question is, but should I rest content with the state of my mind? And the answer is no. That if there's more to be done, you, t you try to do it. And then he put aside unskillful frames of reference. The Buddha to do this is essential to focus on the issues that really can lead to the end of suffering. And so one of the functions of cross-questioning is to ask, you know, these questions am I asking, are they good questions? So you have to reflect back on your questions to see if they're leading you in the right direction. And it was from his own cross-questioning that he found that the two basic frameworks for categorical answers, which were the teachings about skillful and unskillful actions, and the teachings in the Four Noble Truths. So these are some of the things that Buddha learned from his own path. I'd like to stop there for a second, just if there are any questions on that, before we go into some specific ways in which he used cross-questioning. Um, how does Buddha come to the realization that he has seized the birth? What kind of realization that that he knew that, that took place? Because a lot of people now say they are awakened. Uh, like, you know, is it a misunderstanding? Or was the information not correct? Or they just self-claim something not true? Well, in his case, he asked, well, what is it that leads to birth? And he, he had identified that as the process of becoming. And so one of, the first, one of the first realizations that hit him after he gained his release was there is no more becoming. So... So because there's no more becoming, then there's no birth, yeah. Okay. Um, the other question is about the uh, sen sensory pleasure. Hmm. Is preference considered as a sensory pleasure? Preference? Yeah. Like you have, pref you have preference towards something versus the other. Were you attached to your preference? A couple of years back, I was up, up in... Uh, I don't want to name the place, but I was up north <laughs> in a place where they'd, they'd, they'd heard a lot of teachings on how it's important not to have preferences. And so one day we were driving out to Mount Hood, and the woman who was basically doing the navigating was saying, you know, I know I'm not supposed to, not supposed to have preferences, but I think we should turn right. He said, look, have a preference, come on. <laughs> <laughs> preferences are not bad. 
Now you would prefer to put in the suffering than to suffer, right? It, the, prob the problem is you're clinging to, you get really fascinated with thinking about what would be the best meal you could have tonight or what would be the best sensual pleasure you could have tonight. That's, that's the problem. You know, if your certain foods agree with you, they don't agree with you, okay, you, you prefer, you have the opportunity, you take the foods that agree with you. Preferences are not bad. When they say the great, the great way is not hard for people with no preferences, what that means is you're willing to do whatever the great way demands. But the great way, you're following the great way because you would prefer not to suffer, right? Question here? Um, maybe a question for a summary later on, but I'm going to ask it now. You mentioned something about a misframed question. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the Buddha's problems with his um, austerities. Could you just give more examples of the types of unskillful questions, like what a person um, could get entangled with? Like you said, mis a misframed question or a... Okay, are people who... Like monks who live in the forest are always better than monks who don't live in the forest? It depends. It's a misframed question. Are there other... So can you just give a, a general overview of... Not, not a misframed question, but just questions in general, like um, having... Um, Say, and it depends for something that would be a categorical answer, or um, I'll have to just think about how okay. to say this differently. Mm -hmm. It seems like you, a person can be entangled in a wrong form of questioning. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha said, "Ah, this was I, I misframed my question." He didn't say, "Oh." I was looking at something categorically, but it was dependent, or he didn't. Um, well, there are cases where the Buddha is asked a question, and he said, "This does not deserve a categorical answer, or it deserves an analytical answer." He kind of flags these issues, and a lot of times there, but it's just there are just not enough variables listed in the question itself. He says you have need, need to add a few more variables in order to be able to give a good answer. So I guess my question is, if you're asking questions and you're not getting the results you want, how do you know that you're asking the wrong question? What are the flags for saying, oh, that the Buddha said, instead of doing even more austerities, trying to think of different austerities, said, oh, finally, this is a misframed question. I mean, we could, That's just trial and error of just not getting the results you want. Right. Mm -hmm. Trying a different form of questioning. Right. Mm -hmm. Question back there. I think my question was similar and is about doubt. Mm -hmm. And I can see how cross-questioning could be, you could disguise doubt as cross-questioning. Mm -hmm. And being trained in science and going through that whole kind of hyper-analytical process, I tend to slip into that. Mm -hmm. So how do I catch myself, or how do I notice when cross-questioning has actually become unskillful? When you find it paralyzing, 
said, gee, I really don't know what to do now. So when there are no answers coming When up. no answer is coming up, you say, well, let's just give it a stab. Because this, I think this is one of the problems we have, is that we're not willing to try something out and find out that it was wrong and learn from it. We think that you know, that was time wasted. Well, not necessarily. We learned, okay, this, this course of action does not follow. Thank you. Of course, when you're when you're using government funding, <laughs> <laughs> you want to be you want to cross out and some of the ver- some of the you know the, the alternatives that are obviously not going to work. But I mean that's part of science is realizing okay there's a lot of stuff we don't know until we test it. Yeah. So you kind of suspend the doubt and just right. take mm-hmm. some action. Mm-hmm. Yes, way in the back. Just a second, we can't hear you, so we, we'll, we'll move the mic. Uh, the question that keeps coming up in my mind is, uh, in putting this into practice, mm-hmm. how do you deal with, or what is the best way, a skillful way, to deal with the minds, um, and I guess, you know, the, the egos, um, Tendency to justify, to um, um, uh, make it difficult to really see what's really going on mm-hmm. in your mind. Mm-hmm. That's when it's good to have a teacher, oh. <laughs> someone who can can challenge you. Mm-hmm. Are you really? Is this really going to really good for you, or are you just kind of hoping hoping that it's going to be good for you? Okay. And that's why you need to have a teacher who knows you. Thank you. Ajahn, mm-hmm. before the Buddha was enlightened, when he was a bodhisattva, um, and he had that vision, how could he possibly? How could it possibly mean anything more than it meant to him at the time? Like it's his vision; it can only mean what it meant to him at the time. You know, like how could it have more meaning than what he understood from it at the time? Well, he found out later, but having acted on his acting on his assumption, well, it was wrong. This is one of the reasons why he learned that when you give an analogy to somebody, you don't just throw out the analogy and leave it there. You ask a few questions about it to make sure that the person understands that these are the implications of the analogy. So when you're teaching somebody, remember that. <laughs> was, but I guess my question is more, was that truth there with the original analogy beyond what he understood from it, or did that truth only come later through the process of understand, better understanding, refine the analogy, or the whole thing was present to begin with, and he just didn't understand it? I think that the implication was there, but he didn't yeah. see it. I mean, you have a couple of... Forrester John's talking about you know, the insights that actually led to the awakening. The insight came, but they didn't understand it. They didn't understand how it applied. And then finally, when they understood, oh, this applies to that, that opened things up. How is that possible? Like, how can you see part of it? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> how do I put a shrug on the recording? <laughs> how do I put a shrug on the recording? <laughs> Sorry. Um, Tanajan, I was wondering is. Um, is all sensory pleasure um, 
not so bad as if you don't think about it, because I'm thinking about the case of sexual activity. It seems like even if you don't cling to it and think of it, it's still not path. Yeah, it's it's then the, the action itself becomes you know it's against the precepts. Uh-huh. So the, basically, the Buddha said, when you indulge in a particular pleasure, you have to look at what kinds of mental states are produced by it. So it's not just what mental states lead to your wanting to have it, but also what mental states are are produced by the by the pleasure. And if you find that unskillful mental states are being produced, okay, you got to stop. And this is kind of related, but there there's been a debate, <coughs> uh, kind of around me about whether the the pleasure produced by meditation and sex are the same types of dopamine and 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 uh, I, I, I feel like it's a question that should be put aside but I don't I don't know what what your what your thoughts are. let's put it this way there is skillful dopamine production and unskillful dopamine production <laughs> I see um, but then the question even of itself it seems like it's like not not Relevant to when was happen. the last time you saw dopamine? <laughs> no, yeah, right, right, right. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. okay one more question. We break from a bit afternoon. Mike. The, the question is this. There's this was a passage somewhere where the Buddha says that uh, he had given up sensual pleasure or indulging in sensual, sensual pleasures by leaving the palace. But then his mind was beset with thoughts of uh, sensuality. sensuality. Mm-hmm. And then he says uh, uh, Something like uh, I hadn't uh, familiarized myself with the uh, frame of being uh, without directed thought, and, uh, and and so because of the fact that he hadn't familiarized himself with that, he hadn't seen the draw the drawback of sensuality. Mm-hmm. Or so I'm puzzled. It seems like being without directed thought is more of a second jhana thing. I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is that is he trying to say that without second jhana I couldn't? No, it was without, without the first jhana. Without the first jhana, mm-hmm. he couldn't. So he was saying that without jhana itself, he was not able to get past sensuality. Right. So he, may, he said, yeah, up to that point, you can see the drawbacks and drawbacks and drawbacks as much as you like, but there will be still part of the mind that will be willing to go back unless you found this higher pleasure. Okay. So, what is he saying that basically the directed thought is, in this particular case, is he talking about directed thought as directed thought towards sensuality? Well, the directed thought in... No, it says, as soon as he had not seen the pleasure and rapture of the first jhana, that's when his mind was... Before he had seen that pleasure, then his mind was still susceptible to going back. You remember with his years of self-torture, he was trying to beat the sensuality out of his mind by, you know, just sheer force of will. I see. So there was no, there was no jhana at all over there. It was not the right a jhanas, kind no. of a force of will. Yeah. Okay. He had what he called the jhana of no breathing, where he just suppressed his breath. Right. Okay. It was, you know, extreme act of will. Hmm. But that didn't get rid of it. Now, um, in order to avoid 
some se uh, se uh, thoughts of sensual sensualities. Uh, we do have to uh, distance ourselves from sensual pleasures also. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that not? Some sensual pleasures, yes. So, some, I mean, if you had to distance yourself totally from sensual pleasures, we'd throw you in prison. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. But uh, so uh, in that case, the uh, sensuality that we are, uh, we are talking about is not the sensuality that would be uh, of enjoying, but it's a kind of sensuality of just uh, maybe a result of uh, having enjoyed the result. That's the sensuality that we are trying to avoid? In no, that? it's the sensuality where you sit around planning about what your next sensual pleasure is going to be. That's for the planning, but you're saying that even the, even the one, uh, which, even the sensuality that results from having indulged in sensuality, mm -hmm. or sensual Yeah, well, that's, that's basically planning for the next one. Oh, okay. What, right, you're also looking right, for is, right. what you're looking for in terms of results, you're looking for do unskillful qualities increase in my mind. Do I have more passion? Do I have more aversion? Do I have more delusion? Mm. Because of indulging in this particular pleasure. Right. Okay. Or how it could have been more intense, or how one could intensify it further more. For, for or the next time. Like that, yeah. For the next time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, one time we were having a meal and they served durian, which I learned to like. <laughs> and... There was one particular piece of durian that was really good. So I asked John, what do they call this? He said, why do you need to know? <laughs> Touché. <isn't it? laughs> okay, we'll break until three. We come back. <laughs> 